I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're con continuing in our series highlighting certain passages of relevance to us from the book of Corinthians. And so far in the series, I've actually followed successively the verses from chapter 1, verse 1. I may not continue to do it that way, but it's just happened that way. My title this morning is Preaching with Power. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through to 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When we talk about power, sometimes we've got some hurdles to overcome, some negative images of power to break down in our minds before we get to the positive understanding of what God's power is all about. We take political power for, for, as an example, and we see what people are prepared to do to get into political power, what they do when they are in political power, and what they do to maintain their political power. And it's not always a good story. There is a story of two politicians discussing this, and one politician was a little critical of the other politician, suggesting that what he had done was an abuse of power. And the second politician replied like this, somewhat defensively, well, you don't know that you've got power until you've abused it. Mm. Well, the power that we're talking about really cannot be abused because it's talking about, at heart, a man who hung on a cross naked, the very antithesis of worldly power because the message of the cross is the power of God for salvation. Another issue is the might is right. I'm right because I'm stronger than you. I'm right because I've got a gun pointing at your head. I'm right because I can determine how much I tax you. The might is right was swept right throughout Europe during the build-up to in the course of the Second World War with the Nazi regime. And there is a story which contrasts this worldly political and military power with true spiritual power. It's concerning a woman by the name of Edith Stein. She was a Carmelite nun, also a Jewess, and she was summoned before the Nazis who were occupying her country and uh, said, uh, commanded, you know, with a gun almost to her head, say Heil Hitler! And she said, may Jesus Christ be praised. <laughs> no, we said say Heil Hitler! And she said, may Jesus Christ be praised. What a contrast. Who had the most power? The person and the people with that military sense of power and force? Or a woman who was calling upon the name of the God of the universe who manifested himself in the extreme form of humility and surrender that Jesus showed us when he died on the cross? 
Now, Edith Stein was uh, hastened very rapidly to Auschwitz as a result of that. And even though her human weakness was clear, clearly no match for this forceful, monstrous manifestation of human political power, nevertheless, that lady is now in heaven giving glory to God. And when we think about uh, Adolf Hitler, one of the things that concerns us was his ability to move the masses with his rhetoric. And seeing as we're talking about public proclamation and public speaking, we need to spend a moment or two thinking about that. Because Paul is certainly not advocating the ability of a man or a woman to sway a crowd with emotional ranting and rhetoric. But Adolf Hitler was very skilled at that. We're told that he would often practice in front of a mirror just to get it right, so he would have exactly the right effect on his audiences. And we're told that in the build-up to uh, his, his rise to power, he would call people together in the taverns, and, and hundreds of them at a time, and uh, he would begin to speak to them very softly, very gently, using logic and reason, and tearing down through logic all the arguments of the people that opposed him. And after about two hours, he would change. Two hours as they had more and more beer, <laughs> he would change until eventually he would be using these high-sounding, dramatic kind uh, of manipulative uh, rhetoric, statements of rhetoric. And uh, it would be as if his listeners were led through the movements of uh, an oral symphony and his final rich crescendo that would inspire them to action. Oh, sends chills down your spine. And yet, many, many preachers, preachers be aware, let me just say that, because our power is not in the strength of our rhetoric or in the forcefulness of our position or in how much we raise our voice. I raise my voice, and I get excited and enjoy it, and I think it is fantastic. But with certain audiences, you better not raise your voice at all. Here in Kensington Temple, if you don't shout, they don't think you believe it. In some audiences, when you come to a very important point, you actually lower your voice, and they're suddenly impacted. So we do have to study the art of communication and so on, but the art of communication has nothing to do with manipulation. Because the power of our preaching is in the truth of the word we preach. God's word carries its own power. It's also in the preparedness of the vessel. A preacher should aspire to be and certainly be an instrument in the hands of God. Which is not just about external appearance. It's far more what's going on on the inside. The purity of a heart. The purity of passion. The prayerful preparation for the anointing of God to fall. The study and mastery of the knowledge of the truth of God. But more than anything else, depending on God. Because in preaching, we are asking God to do what only God can do. Which is to touch the human heart and to bring the kingdom of God. Now we do need to think about the form of communication. Preaching sermons... It's a form of communication. There's nothing quite like it anywhere. It's a form of communication. And it's, it's a, the form of communication that best facilitates 
the release of God's power. And so there's a great deal that we need to consider as we prepare our lives to give the Word of God. And especially when you are set apart by God's people in recognition of a call upon your life, a call to preach. Not everybody has that call to preach. But everybody is called to preach. And so whether you are the, the representative of the body of Christ, or a gifted preacher and teacher, trained and set apart and anointed and appointed for that task, or whether you are a member of a cell group that is concerned, like we all are as believers, to share our faith. We all carry the message. So today, there's something in this sermon for you all. I want to begin by showing how the message itself is the source of the power. Remember that. The Word itself is powerful. So we talk about preaching with power. It has to be the Word of God. God will not own the words that are put into His mouth. We are here for God to speak through us by His Word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the Word of the Lord is living and powerful. God's Word is alive. It's not a dead word. And while I believe in studying it critically in terms of its historical context and so on, and using our minds and offering God the very best of our intellect, intellect our research and our power and capacity to think and study, it's not just a word as other words. It's not just a word like a Shakespearean word. It's not just great literature. In fact, some of the forms and styles that you find in the Scripture are totally unique. Let's take the Gospels for an example. The Gospels are big sermons. Uh, they give and contain accurate historical fact and knowledge, but it's more than historical fact and knowledge. It's the revelation of who Jesus is, what He was like, what He said, what He did, what He came to do, and what He actually achieved. So the whole of the Bible, we can see forms of communication which are not mere literary form. Of course, it uses poetry, and, and there's even some science in the Scriptures. But really, it's a message, a love letter from the heart of God. And even more than that, it's not just history. You don't read it as an historical textbook. There's history in it. Its historical facts are verified and, and trustworthy. But it's more than that. It's not just history in the sense that we understand it. It's more like his story, his story, if you know what I mean. And so it says the Word of, the, of God is living and powerful. This means that you can never ever hear a dead word from God. Every word from God is living. Now you can reject it or refuse to receive it or not even hear it, but it has life. Even today, the Word of God in this service can bring life into your spirit. The life-giving Word of God, and that's what preachers do. They are proclaimers of life. But it's the marvelous miracle of God's revelation that brings life to your spirit. Then it goes on to say, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's just like a surgeon's scalpel. It cuts straight through the heart, cuts through all human argument, cuts through all human pretense, and exposes the inner workings of the human personality and lays everything bare before God. Powerful word of God. Sharper 
than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the laying bare or division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How wonderful that we have the Word of God in our possession, and we can turn to the Word of God so that God can work deeply within our lives. And this, after all, is what Paul is talking about. When he says, I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God, what is God's witness? What is the revelation of God's witness to this generation and every generation? We touched on it last week. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All good biblical preaching must be Christ-centered. It must preach the cross of Christ, must elevate the cross of Christ, because this is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so the message of the cross, the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible is a powerful message. And why? When Paul says, I preach the message of the cross, he knows that that's God's method of revealing Christ. Christ is made known through the preaching of the Word of God. He manifests in the preaching. That's why we preach. We preach not just <laughs> because we like the sound of our own voice. We preach not just because it's traditional that we do so. We preach for a purpose, to give God the opportunity to reveal more about Jesus, the manifestation of His Son through the proclamation of the word. That's why we are not ashamed of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul says just that. Why? Because he is about to come to Rome. And let me tell you about ancient Rome. If you thought London was a degenerate place, I mean, if you think that, or maybe some other sin city that you could name, Rome puts everything else in the shadows. It was a terrible place in terms of morality and kindness and so on and so on. And Paul describes this. He describes Roman society, not just to point the finger at that sin city, the capital of the ancient world, but to show that this is the nature that's within all of us as, as human beings. And Paul is excited. The more he thinks about what's going on in Rome, the more excited he is because he knows that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds. And he says, because of all this, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to preach the gospel. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, Paul knew where the power lay. The power lies in the gospel. That's why we must recover confidence in the simple, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest need in this city. We can talk about political 
tendencies. We can talk about moral problems. We can talk about people turning their back upon God. And, and we can complain about that even in our prayers. We can mumble and grumble to God. But we have the solution. And the solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to recover confidence in the gospel. You can preach and a Muslim cleric can be saved. You can preach and an atheist who has all the arguments in the textbooks on, on his desk can be saved. The most immoral person, the most moral sinner can be saved. The gospel can cut through all of that. It's the power of God. Recover confidence in the gospel and begin to preach it and live it so that our nation can be touched once again by the power of God. Go ahead, give him a praise. So it's the message, and we need to make sure we study the message and know the content of the message. And uh, one of the things we're going to be doing is this year, again, revisiting this in our, in our teaching so that every single cell leader, every single cell member, every person who comes to Kensington Temple will be equipped to make a presentation of the gospel, to know what the gospel is and to know how to communicate it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it's not just the message. Understand me. It's not just the message. Let me put it to you this way. Here we have a Bible and uh, people can have access to the word of God in Britain just at the press of a button, literally. You can go online, Internet Bible Gateway, find the, the Bible in whatever language or version you choose. You can still go to a bookshop, if you can find any more these days, and you can find a Bible. You can order on Amazon. By this time the next day, you'll get it. So the access is there. People have Bibles in their homes. But unless you open it, unless you hear it, Unless it is preached and proclaimed, it has no effect whatsoever. So when Paul says the message of the cross, he's not just talking about the content. He's also talking about it being proclaimed. So the word of God would be published and preached and proclaimed. The word preaching in, Bible, in the Bible is not a negative word. In our culture and society, well, stop preaching at me. No, 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 no. It's positive. It's a proclamation in which you can meet God. But it must be published. It must be proclaimed. And so Paul now, in chapter 2, is beginning to draw their attention to the way in which he preached it. And uh, he makes it very clear that when he preached it, he preached it in a certain way. He didn't use certain techniques that they were used to. Don't forget, this was a, a Greek community in, in one way or another that had been familiar with the, the way the Greek philosophical teachers went about their business. And um, believe me, Paul knew about that stuff. He knew it inside out. He was highly educated. He could have presented the gospel in that format if he chose to do so. But he said, I'm not going to do that because I don't want your faith to rest in the clever arguments of men. 
No, no. Your faith must rest in the power of God. So I'm going to preach in such a way that invites the power of God into the equation. That so draws attention to who God's, who is speaking, that's God and not me, through this message, so that you will know that this is the Word of God and you will respond to Him and you will experience His power. In fact, He's so strong about this that He uses language to describe His preaching that, frankly, no aspiring preacher today, unless they understood these principles properly, would ever dare to say. Certainly no self-respecting faith preacher would ever admit to this. Verse 3. I was with you in weakness. Paul, brother, you're supposed to be talking about power. Don't talk about weakness. Oh, no, you don't understand. It's my weakness. That makes room for God's power. He said, I came. I, I preached in weakness. I preached in fear. Oh, Paul, heresy. Don't you know? Perfect love casts out fear, brother. No, no, no. Paul isn't afraid to draw attention to his weakness, his fallibility, his own fleshly inability to do what only preaching can do when it's filled with the power of God. Fear and in much trembling. And what's more, he says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Meaning, I did not use clever techniques to manipulate you into listening to my message. And uh, clever techniques kind of fall into two kind of categories. One, one is the kind of, you know, clever argument. You can listen to a speaker and you think, I kind of agree with everything he said, but when you hear the conclusion, you think, I'm being manipulated. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes when we think about manipulative communication, we think about advertising, but at least you know it's an advertisement. In a newspaper, if it's a, a kind of um, infomercial, it's got to say this is an advertisement because you're reading it as somebody's trying to sell you something. It's an advertisement, and therefore you use some critical faculties. But what would be very unfair is if the advertisement was there and you, it wasn't called an advertisement. And so you have to be discerning. Even when people are trying to present good, apparently good, logical arguments. There are rhetorical devices and means of manipulation, how you use information, what you say and what you don't say. And, and the, 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 these ancient philosophers were, were full of that. And Paul said, no, I, I didn't, didn't do that at all. I'm not trying to persuade you with human wisdom. I want you to see this by the power of God. So he didn't use rhetoric, persuasion, whether it is intellectual knowledge, intellectual arguments, or clever-sounding arguments. No, and that's the one form of manipulation. Another form of manipulation is to play on people's emotions, is to impact people's emotions, and they stop thinking because they're so impacted. And some people can come to Christ or think they've come to Christ on an intellectual sermon. That doesn't bring you to Christ. Or on an emotional sermon. People come to Christ, or apparently, or think they do, just by responding emotionally. And then when the emotions changes, the God changes. 
They change their lot. Somebody else, somebody who speaks better, somebody else who uh, touches their emotions. We need to come to God with our whole personality, and we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. Because unless you are born again by the Word of God, through the Spirit, it doesn't matter how intellectually convinced you are, how emotionally moved you are, you are still not saved. Amen. You can have emotional conversions, intellectual conversions, but a spiritual conversion is only God who can do that. Amen, amen and amen. Now, I was reading an author, Timothy McCann, uh, on preaching with power, and he was saying this, that true preaching is spirit-empowered. Now, that's what I'm saying today, but he says it's spirit-empowered, not rhetoric-empowered. Rhetoric-empowered preaching appeals to the emotions, but doesn't plant anything of God in the human spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can convict of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can help people grow. Only the Holy Spirit can facilitate the rebirth and move people from one place to the next. He says, you can motivate my socks off. But if it is not spiritually empowered, you're just a motivational speaker. It's informative and entertaining, but doesn't touch my spirit. You can get a large congregation, but it doesn't transform my spirit. It makes for amazing television. But in the spirit, there is a void. What a warning for all of us, both as preachers and hearers of the word of God. It's very possible to be a great orator and an amazing communicator, but still not impart the life of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Paul says, no, I didn't do any of this. What I did was I presented God's Word in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, that word demonstration immediately as charismatic Pentecostal believers, yeah, we know what that is. Signs and wonders, or as some say, signs and blunders. <laughs> signs and wonders. And I have personally experienced and witnessed in my ministry and in other people's ministry the power of signs and wonders to confirm the Word and help people come to Christ. But I've also seen people who've witnessed great miracles and still reject Christ. Because you can see a miracle, that's your, what you see with your eyes. That's external. And it, God has a place for it because he says he confirms his word with signs that follow the preaching of the word. And it's part of God's plan. But you may even be Jesus himself preaching a perfect sermon with manifestations of signs, wonders, and miracles, and people still reject that's exactly what happened to Jesus on his Galilean preaching tour. He came back after that and he begins to say, God, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. And even the places where he did his greatest miracles, he had to say, woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Because even though you saw the miracles, you did not believe. Miracles are not a substitute for faith. Miracles can help encourage faith. And anyway, God is a miracle-working God. He loves to show up. He loves to manifest His power. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And I want to encourage you to believe God for your miracle. 
but it's not an infallible way for people to come to faith. And so, you know, miracles in many ways are not enough. What we need is the Word to penetrate our heart. And Paul uses this word, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he's clearly talking about God's capacity to reveal himself through his word powerfully. But it's the word demonstration that fascinated me. I looked it up, and the word demonstration here actually is a highly technical, philosophical word. See, Paul's a clever communicator, and he knows they understand that word. And that word demonstration means bringing people to a compelling conclusion because of the premises that you have and the arguments you use. And it's not a bad word. It's not a bad word. Uh, I mean, you, well, may, maybe you think it's a bad word after I tell you how you might remember it. Remember at school, and you did uh, mathematics, and you were asked to prove something mathematically. Do you remember that? What were you taught when you got to your conclusion and proved the point you were asked to prove? You had to write Q-E-D, which means that which was to be demonstrated. Quad erat demonstrandum, something like that. How many people remember that? Okay, well, you see, the rest of you... So demonstrating something is, is a way of saying bringing proof, arguing, so that people can see the conclusion is sound. And Paul says, I, I've persuaded you in a way. Preaching must be persuasive, but only God can persuade. So people can say, yes, I know it's true. It was demonstrated. How? Well, there were arguments and reasoning but there was something more. It touched my heart. It touched my emotions. But there's something more. God was in it. I'm convinced by the Holy Spirit who convicted me. And that's what annoys people who don't have faith. They say, it's easy for you. Even they say, I wish I could be like you. What? I wish I could have your faith. But you know, I'm more realist. Our faith is not of our making. And it's not produced by the preacher's capacity. It's produced by the Holy Spirit who can penetrate the darkest heart with the light of his revelation, the hardest heart with his armor-piercing word and bring a conviction. And people know that. And when Paul says this, it was the demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God. He persuaded you. He was drawing attention away from himself, from the kind of persuasion that depends on the personality of the preacher, from the techniques of his or her delivery, by the way in which he or she rolls the R's at certain key points in the preaching of the word, or even, dare I say, humbly, the wonderful, beautiful, good-looking nature of the preacher's external persona. 
So it's not the preacher's ability, presence, charisma, or even confidence in himself, but the supernatural power of the Spirit that is upon the preacher and upon whom the preacher depends. And Paul was very conscious of this in his own ministry. Let me show you something. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me tell you that this is the passage that one of the big New Testament passages about spiritual warfare, reminding us that we are wrestling against invisible, unseen forces, powers of darkness, principalities and powers, and, and we need to be clothed in the full armor of God. And, and he goes through this it's a wonderful passage, but when he's finished describing the armor of God, saying, this is how I want you to, be, to, to dress uh, in this battle, he doesn't stop there. Because you can be all dressed up with nowhere to go, all geared up with nothing to do. So it doesn't stop. And uh, in verse 18, Ephesians 6, in the same context, the same sentence, he says, dressed up in the armor of God, make sure that you are praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And he still hasn't finished. He goes on, verse 19, he says, And also pray for me. Let's stop there. Isn't it amazing that Paul constantly asks people to pray for him? You might say, well, Paul, listen, he was highly intelligent, incredibly called by Jesus, had a revelation of Christ and was, had so much knowledge that he was able by the uh, inspiration of the Spirit to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He was a man who had a lot of courage in himself. He is a man of conviction and passion. Even as an unbeliever, he was more passionate than anybody else. He was the one who had a zeal beyond his own peers for the, for the religion of Judaism of the day. And, and he even got authority to go and persecute Christians. And he, he was passionate in all these things. And yet, and yet, he says, I need your prayers. Don't forget to pray for me. Parenthesis within parenthesis. Don't forget to pray for me. Please don't forget to pray for me. Pray for me, for my wife, my family. Pray for all the members of staff and, and especially those who have this awesome responsibility to present the word of God to you. Don't forget to pray. So that's amazing enough. And Paul says, pray for me. But when you read what's the top of his prayer list, his biggest prayer request, it's, it's doubly amazing. He says, pray for me. That utterance may be given to me. Pray that God would open my mouth. That I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. What's that about? Paul was never short of a word. But he said, I don't want it to be my word. When I open my mouth, I want utterance. Utterance is almost a technical term. It means that which flows by way of speech coming from the Holy Spirit. I want God to speak through me. And you can have it all word perfect in your preparation. But when you stand up, you need something more. You need God to take over. So it's no longer you speaking so, uh, uh, so much as to say, as it is God speaking. It is the ability under the anointing of God to bring forth spiritual truths expressed in spiritual language. Words given 
by the Holy Spirit so that those words would exactly meet the needs of the people who are listening and so precisely reach the target in their heart concerning their needs, their problems, their barriers, their stumbling blocks and bring a conviction that will manifest the power of God in their lives. Another passage similar to this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. While you're turning there, Paul is so excited about writing this letter because when he preached the gospel, it was an amazing time. He preached the gospel there, founded a church there, saw so many people come to Christ, and he can't wait to write, and he wants to share his testimony. He wants to tell them what was it like for him to be in, in Thessalonica. And as, as soon as he's finished the op open, customary, spirit-filled uh, op opening part of the letter, the courtesy, greetings, and things like that, he gets straight down to it. And in verse, eight, uh, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. What's he saying? He's saying, I know that you are chosen by God. I know that you are beloved by God, that God has received you and that God has done a deep work in your life. Do you know how I know? Because when I came to preach, and I stood up to preach, something happened to me. I was particularly conscious that the words I were, was, were bringing, the words I was bringing, was not, were not my words. There was something on me, to use Pentecostal language, the anointing of God hit the place. And my word didn't come in word only. It did come in word. Don't think that a charismatic ministry is a, is a ministry that ignores the word. Give me the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. The word can wait. Spirit, spirit, word, spirit, word. No, the two are together. It must come in word. You need to be convinced of what the gospel is. If somebody says, put the gospel in a nutshell, you could say it. If somebody gives you five minutes on BBC News, you could fill that five minutes with anointed proclamation of the gospel. Whoever you are, we are all representatives of Jesus Christ. Know the word. Know how to communicate the word. But it didn't come in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. He is giving his testimony. Something happened. I knew that when I was speaking, my words were carrying power. A power that doesn't come from me. A power that can only come from above. I knew that. I sensed it. And, and it came with, with assurance. There was such a conviction. The word gripped my heart. It became so real to me as I was preaching. And at times when we're preaching and ministering, never is Jesus more real than when the word is being preached. Never is he more real upon the preacher or upon the listener than when the word is going forth with power and says, Paul, I owe it all to the Holy Spirit. And that's why we need to pray for preachers. And that's why preachers need to pray before they preach. So that 
They're not depending on themselves. You know, sometimes the sense of power we experience in our preaching has more to do with what God is doing in the hearts of those who are listening to us than to our efforts as preachers. I remember an occasion when I was preaching a message in London Arena years ago, and we had a big crowd, big congregation, and we had, when we had, had celebrations at Sunday evenings, that part, part of town, and I, I prepared a great message. No, it was a good message. No, it really was. It was a fantastic message. And I preached it. And, you know, okay. And then a team and me, we traveled straight from that meeting to the airport, and we flew over to Sao Paulo, Brazil. So Monday, travel, rest, Tuesday, preaching time. So I preached the same message on the Tuesday evening that I preached two days before in London. Wow. No. Really, wow, what God did. And afterwards, the team were all excited. Wonderful message. We've never heard you preach that one before. I said, what are you talking about? I preached it on Sunday night. You did? <laughs> you didn't preach it like that. What was the difference? The difference was what God was doing that night in the hearts of those people in that place. And so it's about God meeting with people. This kind of preaching cuts through the strongholds of the mind. Let's spend a moment on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This was our key text in our January vision conference. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. What are these strongholds? There's a lot of confusion about what strongholds are and what spiritual warfare really is. But Paul puts his finger on this when he says, verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought, everybody say thought, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So what Paul is saying is there are strongholds of the mind and strongholds, demonic strongholds in people's thinking that prevent truth from entering. And that's why you can talk to somebody about Jesus until you are blue in the face and nothing can happen. But then one day, the word goes in. The anointing of God carries that, demolishes the strongholds and brings them to repentance, a change of mind. These people have big barriers, demonically imposed barriers, not just intellectual problems or problems of, uh, where they could say, you know, I'd, I've been let down by the church or my mother was a Christian and she drove me crazy and I, was, I went to school in a nunnery and that's enough to put me off. I want none of that religion as a result of that. But actually the real problems are the spiritual forces that are holding people captive in unbelief in their minds. And no amount of talking can do that. Mere words can't do anything about that. But the power of God can supercharge a word that can penetrate the strongholds of the mind. But it's worse than that. Not only are their minds bound by foolishness, 
but their eyes are blind. They can't even see the truth. So what kind of ministry do you need to open the eyes of the blind? Opening the eyes of the spiritual blind is far harder than opening the eyes of the physical blind. When I first witnessed a, a, somebody's blind eyes opening in one of our healing meetings, it, to me, it was astonishing. Because you're addressing blind eyes and you're commanding them to open. And you know that, it, <laughs> that blind eyes don't listen to you. Uh, and on one eye was written, I can't see. And the other eye was written, neither can I. And there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> well, of course there's nothing I can do about Colin I cannot open the eyes of the blind, but Jesus can. And when I spoke that word, something happened in the spiritual realm, and those eyes were opened. And that's a miracle. I would celebrate that, but I would not exaggerate it and its significance. Because the greater miracle is spiritual blindness to be removed. This kind of preaching will remove the scales from people's eyes. But it's even more difficult than that because we're not just speaking to people whose minds are closed and in bondage, whose eyes are blind. We're actually speaking to people who are dead and buried and have no life in them. Spiritually dead without Christ. Try go preaching to the cemetery. Bones, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And if you're going to hear anything, it'll be <laughs> sleeping. No bones are going to listen to you. Now, I've not experienced personally somebody being raised from the dead in my ministry, but I've heard of it and seen other people who have. But even the physical raising from the dead is nothing by comparison to the spiritual raising from the dead because the word we preach is a life-giving word, the word of life. And so when we preach, we're preaching to people whose minds are closed, whose eyes are blind, whose ears are, are deaf, and whose spiritual capacity dead. That's why we need to preach with the voice that will waken the dead. Amen and amen. And then we need to spend a moment or two thinking about the effects. We've spoken about the message and the proclamation. Now the effects. Uh, I might just finish by saying the rest is history. Paul says, I preached like this so that your faith would rest in the power of God, not the wisdom of men. So as we preach, something amazing happens. God's Spirit works in people's hearts. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 10 to 11. By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, me or other preachers, so we preach and you believed. That's the miracle. Because you receive the word not as the word of men, but the word of God, because you hear God speaking. I quoted it already, but let's look at it again. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is the work of the Spirit in people's hearts. The powerful operation of the Word of God. The conviction that cuts to the heart, penetrates to the core of the being. 
and causes those who truly respond to be born again by the power of God. So I ask you, please pray for preachers. That utterance would be given to them. Not only will they do their homework, not only will they study and have that knowledge, because knowledge just doesn't save anybody, that they will have the ability and develop communication skills. And there is a lot that we have to learn to get out of the way and get rid of the barriers that prevent communication from taking place. So I'm not saying that there aren't skills to learn and develop, but we never depend on those skills. And the big test is this, ask the preacher. You preached for a long time today. How many equivalent hours do you, did you spend praying as Paul requested people to pray for him, that the words would be God's words that he's chosen to reach people today. Then also, for all of us, we need to learn how to listen to the word of God preached. You know what it's like. You try and witness to somebody who's not interested in the gospel. You don't get very far. But somebody who wants to know more, they just draw it out of you. Now, I'm one of these weak kind of preachers, not trying to be clever. But if people don't want to know, I, I, I find it difficult to communicate. But if I stand up before an audience and they are hungry for God, they just pour it out of me. I preach better than Colin Dye could ever preach because it's the people who are hungry. And I find it very easy to preach here in Kensington Temple. So you guys are open to God. Remain that way. And remember always that Christ is known. He's made known. He is revealed. And he manifests himself through the preaching of the word of God, provided that preaching is not in word only, not being demonstrated with human arguments, manipulative techniques of logic or, or rhetoric. But if there is a humble dependence on everybody, God, do what only you can do. One person may bring a message. Another person may confirm that message. But only the Holy Spirit can bring life. Preaching with that kind of power is one of the greatest needs in our nation today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent men and women with a call to preach to be instruments in your hand by which you may manifest yourself to your people and among your people. We thank you for your power that operates through your word that can reason with the unreasonable, persuade the recalcitrant, break down barriers because you cut through all human argument and obstacles and touch the heart not just the emotions, but touch the heart and the spirit. Thank you for your life-giving word. Help us to be torchbearers and proclaimers of this word in our generation. Katika jinala yesu. Amen and amen. God bless you, people of God.